A couple weeks ago, Wendy and I were sitting at our kitchen table with some friends of ours, and we were playing a game together and just talking and having conversation with one another. And the husband happened to mention that he was finishing off his basement. Their basement was previously unfinished, and he was finishing off the basement and putting in a bathroom down there. I thought, oh, when we lived in our last house, I also finished off the basement and put a bathroom in there. And, you know, I did that when I was there. And, and Wendy, sitting beside me, uh, kind of nudged me and said, well, didn't, you know, this person and his brother actually do the tile work down there? And I was like, well, yeah, they did the, they did the tile work down there. And then she said, well, and didn't this person do the electricity down there? And I'm like, yeah, well, I, yeah, that's true. He did the exercise. And didn't this person actually do the plumbing down there? And I'm like, well, fine. I did nothing in the basement, but it was my idea to finish off this basement uh, to do this. And it's like that sometimes where we do stuff and we get a little far away from it and we forget some of the help that we got along the way. I don't know if that happens to you, but it happens to me. It's like this little table I have up here. I made this table in middle school shop class. Right? I made, Nicole, you went to the, did you make the same table? Same table, right? Middle school, if you went to middle school in Billerica, you made it, you have a table like this somewhere in your house. Because we made this. Now I say I made it, but I made it the same way I finished the basement. Because I was in middle school, and so the shop teacher, I can't even remember his name, which kind of proves my illustration. I remember he was missing at least one finger, maybe a couple. Um, and like all good shop teachers, that's, that's how you, you live and learn. Um, but uh, he basically came and said, you know, we're going to make one of these tables. And we think, great, we're going to make this table. And he says, well, here's the wood you're going to use. Here's all the pieces you got to cut out. Here's the things you can trace so you can cut them out. And uh, here's the saw you can use to cut it out and the sander. And here's how to use that and here's how to do it. And I think somewhere along the way, he was like, you're not doing that right. Let me do that. And, uh, you know, he probably ended up, I think he might have even ended up assembling it. Uh, I think I stained it. I might have stained it. Um, but if you came over to my house and said, hey, that's a nice table. I'm like, yeah, I made it. Yeah. Can you make me one? Nope. Not a clue how to make you one. But it's like that with things sometimes, right? We do these things and you get a little far away from them and you forget how you got there. You kind of forget all the help you got along the way. It can happen that way with tables and things like that, but it can happen that way with a job or just a place you get to in life. And you say, yeah, it's my job. Or it happens when you graduate from school. And, you know, you graduate from college or high school. I graduated. And somewhere in the background, there is a mom and a dad under their breath going, we graduated. <laughs> Because there were science projects and social studies projects and late nights and all these things. But you sometimes forget those things. It doesn't have that big of an impact when it comes to tables and finished basements and diplomas. But when it comes to our spiritual life, if you get to the situation where you forget how you got to where you are, the consequences can actually be much more serious. In fact, devastating. In fact, disastrous, not only for you, 
but for everyone around you. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that this morning by looking at the account of someone in the book of Judges as we continue to go down there, who many of you who have been in church for much of your life will know his name. And you may know his story. But my guess is you know really well one part of his story and maybe not his whole story. His name is Gideon. And I say that, and some of you that have been in church all the time say, I know Gideon. And maybe you do. But I think a lot of us know the front part of Gideon's story, but we don't know his whole story. So here's what I want to do. The scripture we're going to look at as a part of Gideon's life today is kind of near the back of his life. But I recognize someone, there are other people in here who say, I have no idea who Gideon is. So I'm going to tell you the story on the front part of his life. And then we're going to read the scripture that we're going to look at this morning together. If you've been with us, you know in the book of Judges, we're looking at this cycle that happens over and over and over again. And if you've been with us these last four or five weeks, you're like, I am tired of hearing about the cycle over and over again. And if that's the way you're feeling, great! That is the whole point of the book of Judges. That you will get tired of hearing about this over and over and over again that you will get tired of this happening in your life over and over and over again. Because when we look at Judges, the whole point is not that something happened 3,000 years ago in the life of the people of God. It's that it happens today in Burlington, Massachusetts in the life of God's people. That we have this cycle that we sometimes end up in, that we disobey God, he disciplines us, we cry out, he delivers us, and hopefully we don't want to go into dissent But that's what happens to the people of Israel. They just get worse and worse. But they're proving this point that there's this cycle that they are in and they get stuck in over and over and over again. And it isn't just that it happened, it's that it happens. And so as we start Gideon's story in Judges chapter 6, and I'll invite you to turn there because I'm not going to read everything. Everything's not going to be on the screen as I tell the story. So... If you have a Bible, please pick one up, turn to Judges chapter 6. If you don't have one, hopefully in your chair rack, either right beside you, in front of you, or behind you, there will be a Bible there. You can turn to Judges chapter 6, and it's on page about 205 in the chair rack Bibles, and you can grab that. If you don't own a Bible, like you didn't just forget it, like if you went home, you don't have a Bible on your shelf at all, then please take this chair rack Bible as our gift to you. Let that be your Bible. Take that home, put your name on it, bring it back with you each and every week. Let that be your Bible. Let that be our gift to you, and you can have that. We want to make sure everybody that comes to Mount Hope has a Bible in their home. Um, So Judges chapter 6 is where we're picking it up, and you'll see right away that this cycle is up there. In fact, leave the cycle up there for me, John, as I read this part of the scripture, because I want us to see this right away. Judges chapter 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And that is disobedience. We're right there. We're starting out. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They're disobeying. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And that is discipline. And here's what it looks like. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza. 
and leave no sustenance in Israel, and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And that is distress. So we have this, they disobey. God disciplines them. Why does he discipline them? We talked about this because he loves them. Because he loves them too much to watch them walk away completely and eternally. So he disciplines them. He lets them feel the consequences of their actions so that they will recognize they need him. And God does this in your life too. He does it out of love because he loves you too much to let you walk away permanently and forever. So he brings discipline into your life with the expectation and the hope that you will come back and say, God, I need you. I cry out. I shouldn't have left you. I need you. And we cry out in distress, God, deliver me. And that's what they did. So they said, God, we need deliverance. Enter Gideon. And we find Gideon, if you follow along in the story, you find him in chapter 6. He, he is in a wine press threshing wheat. Now, that's not the normal place you thresh wheat. Normally, you press wine in a wine press. But we know why he's there based on the scripture we just read. Because the Midianites come in, and whenever you have food, they take it. So they hide in caves, they hide in the mountains, and they thresh wheat in wine presses. And that's where Gideon is. If you don't know Gideon, uh, the best two words I can use to describe him is maybe skeptical and scared. Because an angel comes to him. He doesn't know it's an angel. Or if he does, he doesn't believe it's an angel. He's not sure. Comes to him and says, Gideon, you mighty man of God. God is going to save Israel and use you to deliver Israel out of the hands of Midian. And Gideon's first response is... Where has God been? Why have we been going through this? What has God been doing? Why are we even in the hands of the Midianites? He's skeptical. And then he's skeptical and scared, saying, basically, you must have the wrong guy. (laughs) There's a Gideon down the street maybe you're looking for. Because I'm the least of the least. He says, my tribe is the least, and I'm the least in the tribe. So there's no way that it's me that's going to be used. And maybe you felt this way before. You know how Gideon feels? Maybe at some point in your life, somebody in church, some godly man, some godly woman looked at you and said, God is going to do amazing things with your life. You just stay on this path. You stay faithful to him. God's got a plan for you. And God, I just know God's going to do something wonderful with your life. And you thought they must mean something that you must mean somebody else. Because I don't, God's not going to do anything with my life. You, if you knew me, there's no way you would say that to me. That's essentially what Gideon's saying. You, if you knew me, I'm the least of the least. Yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not the one God's going to use. But he asks for a sign. He, tell, he tells the messenger, wait here. The messenger says, the angel says, he'll wait. And he comes back with a meal prepared for the messenger. And the, and the angel, the Lord says, you know, put it on the rock. Gideon puts this meal on the rock, and as he does, the angel commands fire from the rock, and it consumes the food. And at that moment, Gideon recognizes that this is an angel from God. And he then, again, like Gideon, is scared even more now, because now he's seen God, and he's sure, I'm going to die, because I have seen God. 
And the angel quells his fears. He says, you're not going to die. But here's what you have to do. Go and tear down your father's altars to false gods. So apparently Gideon's father may have been some kind of elder or something in the village, but, or maintainer of the temples to the false gods, Baal and Asherah. And the angel says, go tear those down. You got to do this because God's going to use you to deliver Israel from the hands of Midian. And so he agrees. Doesn't want to do it. It's going to be hard to do it. But this angel told him to do it. But he decides to do it at night. It's big. It's a big job. So he takes 10 people with him to do it at night. Tears down in the night the altars to the false gods. Everyone gets up the next day and says, what happened? Who did this? It's a small town. There's not that many people. He had 10 guys with him. You're not going to keep it a secret. Everyone says, it was Gideon. And they said, bring him out. We're going to kill him. Now we're going to kill Gideon. Gideon's father, Joash, intervenes. And he says, whoa, 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 wait. If Baal is a god, let Baal deal with him. If Baal's so powerful, let Baal take care of him. And the people like this. They, they, they're, they're fine. Okay, yeah, we'll let Baal deal with him. They actually give Gideon a, a new name, Jerob Baal, meaning Baal contends with him or he contends with Baal. They said, okay, and Gideon's life is spared. But now he's given a task to go out and defeat Midian. And God had given him this task to do. But he's scared about that too. He's not sure uh, that he wants to be sure that God had told him to do it. And this is probably the story that if you've heard Gideon before, this is probably the story most of us know. The story of the fleece. How many of you have ever heard the expression, I'm putting out a fleece, Right? Even if you are not a Christian, now the year is your first day showing up in church, I bet at some time in your life you've heard the expression, we're going to put out a fleece. This is where it comes from. Judges chapter 6. And Gideon, and Gideon says, then Gideon said to God, now I want you to listen to this statement. Then Gideon said to God, did you get that part? Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. Now, I read that statement, and I want to I wanna step back and go, I'm Gideon, you're in for it now. <laughs> if you said, if you're going to do what you said, like all my experiences, if God said it, he's going to do it. I don't start off, if you're going to do what you said, God. But he says, if you're going to do what you said, because Gideon's scared, I'm going to put out a fleece. Now, we don't know exactly what this fleece looked like, but I tried to get something I thought as historically and archaeologically as accurate as we could get, I think, with the fleece. So, this maybe it looked something like this. I don't know, for Gideon, a little fleece blanket or something, right? And... Uh, Give me a break. This may be the only time I get to cheer for the Red Sox this year. It's going to be, looks like it's going to be a tough season. Um, but so he's got this fleece, right? And he says, if you're going to do what you said, that's a bold question. And I've got this fleece I'm going to put out. And when I get up in the morning, make the fleece wet and the ground dry. And God doesn't strike him dead. In fact, graciously accommodates 
And the next day, Gideon gets up, and the fleece is wet, wrings it out, and then the ground is dry. Enough, right? Not for Gideon. Gideon said, one more thing. If you're going to do what you said you were going to do, let's just do this one more thing. Tomorrow morning when I get up, because maybe that's just the way, you know, that was a coincidence. Tomorrow morning when I get up, make the fleece dry and the ground wet. And God graciously, again, responds. And so the next morning, Gideon gets up and the ground's dry. Uh, the ground is wet and the fleece is dry. And let me just, this is not the point of this message, but I, I'm gonna, I, I want to open up a parenthesis here. Okay, this is not, we're not preaching on the fleece today. All right, but I'm going to open up a parenthesis here. This is God's gracious accommodation of Gideon. This is not a prescription of how you find God's will for your life. Especially when God has already clearly made something clear in your life about his will. Like, I don't want to hear someone saying, I'm putting out a fleece and seeing if God wants me to leave my spouse. That's not what this is about. God has already made that clear of what you are supposed to do in certain situations in your marriage. You don't, I don't want a fleece saying, God, I'm putting out a fleece. God, if you really want me to love my neighbor, I'm going to put out a fleece and, and you make it wet or dry. You do this and that. Like God has already made that clear. You love your neighbor. You don't have to put out a fleece. This is God's gracious accommodation of Gideon. It is not a prescription in scripture of this is how you find God's will for your life. And, I, and, and, and I've seen that and I've heard that. And it's, but that's not what the scripture is saying at all. This, if we see anything in here, we say God graciously saying, okay, I don't have to do this. And, 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 you know, very likely with those words and not trusting me. I mean, there's other places in Scripture. I mean, you, you go to like, uh, you know, other places where other people will say, I'm not sure this is you, God. And God just, you know, you're, right, you're not going to talk for the next six months. Uh, you know, see Zechariah's New Testament, birth of Jesus. So, but God graciously accommodates Gideon in this moment. But that's not our way that we find God's will, okay? End parentheses, close parentheses, back to the message. All right, so Gideon, uh, Gideon says, okay, I'm supposed to do this. He goes and he calls out troops and 32,000 people come and form an army. It's not that big of an army compared to what he's facing, probably an army about 10 times that size. Uh, but it's an army, right? And God can do it. So God, he has this army, but God has a problem with it. God doesn't like the odds, and he says this in Judges 7, 2. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. That's an interesting statement. God, they got 300,000. We got 30,000. We're too many? We got too much? Like, I don't quite see it that way. But God said, you got too many. You got too many. Bless Israel boast over me, saying my own hand has saved me. Even with those odds, you're going to be tempted to think that you did it. So here's what you're going to do. You get up and you say, anyone who's scared can go home. And I got to think Gideon's like, I'm first on the list. But he doesn't because he's in it. He's in it at this point, right? God called him. He's in it. But he says, anyone who's scared, go home. 22,000 people leave. Gideon's got an army left, 10,000. It's not that big of an army, but hey, it's 10,000. It's an army. He's got something. God still doesn't like the odds. You got too many. They're still going to boast. I don't like these odds. 
Here's what you're going to do. He gives them a test. He says, go down to the river. Some are going to drink this way. Some are going to drink that way. And the ones that drink this certain way, you send them home. Goes down to the river. 9,700 of them drink in a certain way. God says, those ones go home. 300 are left. God essentially says, now I like the odds. Now I've got what I want. Because there's no way anyone's going to think that 300 beat 300,000. There's no way anyone's possibly going to take credit for that. They're going to know it was me. So Gideon comes up with a strategy. Doesn't say that God gave him this strategy. We don't know that. Just Gideon apparently comes up with a strategy. And, and he, uh, at night, goes up on the hillside. He gets these 300 people. He says, do what I do. Say what I say. They each have a clay pot with a light in it, burning. And they have these trumpets. And they have their voices. And they're up on the hill and they're above this great army. And at the right moment, they blow the trumpets. They break the clay pots. The lights emit their light. And they scream, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And at that moment, the Midianite army down below doesn't know what's going on. Uh, You would think that what they thought was, well, if these people are up there, they're not crazy enough to just be the only 300 up there. They must each have a whole battalion behind them. They must each have a whole army behind them. And so they are just thrown into a panic. They start running over each other. They start killing each other. They start running away. And Gideon and his men pursue them. And they win a great victory against Midian that day. And it's a great victory really in the Lord. And it's in faith. And Gideon did a great thing and was used by God in a great way. But here's the truth. People who are used by God in great ways will face a unique temptation. And it's a temptation that Gideon faces. Let's look at chapter 8. Here's the passage I want us to look at this morning. And it's probably most of us, when we've heard Gideon preach, at least for me, maybe not you, I've often heard everyone give a sermon on the fleece. I've rarely, if ever, heard a sermon on the ephod. Everyone wants to talk about the fleece. No one wants to talk about the ephod. But Judges chapter 8, verse 22, Gideon's ephod. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also. For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city of Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land rested 40 years in the days of Gideon. 
God sent a deliverer. He delivered out of Midian. Gideon had a wonderful accomplishment for the Lord. But Gideon's life does not necessarily end on a joyful, victorious, happy note. And what happened here? What happened to this man who was used by God? I think what happened is Gideon faced a unique temptation that each and every one of us will face when we're used by God. And what happened was he was outwardly devoted to God, but he was inwardly divided. And when you're outwardly devoted and inwardly divided, you become deceived and a deceiver and deceiving. See, he was outwardly devoted. He said all the right things. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm I'm not going to be king. No, 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 I won't be king over you. He said all the right things almost. Because remember what the people said to Gideon? You saved us out of the hands of Midian. His statement should have been, I did not save you out of the hands of Midian. God saved you out of the hands of the Midianites. I mean, that's the point of the whole story. That's the point of getting rid of all the, you know, 31,700 people. The whole point is that you would say, God won the battle. Instead, he says, no, 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 I won't rule over you. God will rule over you. Finish the sentence, Gideon. Finish it. But he doesn't. And you say, okay, well, you know, that's an argument from silence. That's not there. How do you really know what's going on in Gideon's heart? God actually gives us a lot of clues in this passage of what's really going on in Gideon's heart. We look at this and we say, oh man, Gideon, hero, great guy. Let's put him up on flannel grass for the kids. And he is, he did a great thing for God. But God tells his whole story. And he gives us a clue. And here's the clue. Gideon should have been giving the glory to God as king, but he started acting like a king himself. He started acting like a king. And they said, be king. And he said, outwardly, he said, no, I won't. But look at his actions. Back up in chapter 8. Just back up to verse 18. This is how chapter 8. Uh, he, so he pursues these two other kings of Midian. Not unusual in a battle to pursue the kings. But this is, what, this is how it goes. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, these other kings of Midian, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, this is Gideon, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us, for as a man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. And you read that and you think, well, it's just battle. But it's not. God's giving us a clue right here to what's going on in Gideon's heart. Because what he did there was not reverence for God. It was personal revenge. God didn't tell him to go after and kill these kings. It was personal revenge because they had killed his brothers. And that's what kings do. Kings go after people who mess with the royal family. And he was acting out of vengeance, not out of God's direction. And, and, and we also know this because he tells his son, you go kill them. That's exactly what a king does. You go do the dirty work. 
And I think it's not an accident that we are given his son's answer here because his son is doing what Gideon should have done. It's contrasted to the Gideon in the beginning of the story that somehow Gideon has changed. His son won't do it. Gideon is the one that should be the one offering mercy and not doing it. He falls upon them. He kills them. But not only that, we have this little kind of caveat that says he took the camel's crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Why is that a big deal? Not a big deal. Except that those were significant of royalty. The crescent ornaments on the camels were significant of royalty. I'll take those. Those belong to me. He also, if you remember when the people said, no, be king, and he says, no, but I'll take tribute from you. Why don't you bring some money? I'll take that. And I'll take the purple robes and the crescent ornaments and all the things that signify royalty. I'll take all of those. And he's outwardly devoted, but he's inwardly divided. He has multiple wives. He has 72 sons. It's unusual, even for that time. But it's something kings do. They take multiple wives. They have many sons in order to perpetuate their line. He has a concubine. It's something royalty does. His son of a concubine, he names Abimelech, which translates to, my father is king. And he's outwardly devoted, but he's inwardly divided. And he's saying no, he's saying all the right things, but inside he is acting as if he in his own strength, it's his doing. And so he makes an ephod, interesting, priestly garment, doesn't bring it to the temple, doesn't bring it to the Lord's city. In fact, we're intentionally told he put it in his city, Gideon's city. An ephod, interesting because it's a priestly garment that also the priests use to help discern the will of God and the mind of God. Gideon, who needed to use the fleece, doesn't need it anymore because he made his own ephod. And people go and whore after it and worship it and false worship is given to it and it becomes a snare to Gideon and to his family because when you are outwardly divided and inwardly, when you are outwardly devoted, inwardly divided, you end up deceiving yourself and the people around you. And so he ended up leading people astray. He ended up leading people astray because when you minimize God's role in your story, you easily become outwardly devoted and inwardly divided. At some point, Gideon became the center of the story. Became his story, not God's story. Became about his success and not God's success. The whole point was that God would get the glory. The whole point was that God would be lifted up and honored. And unfortunately, it ends with saying, they all whored after this garment and it ensnared his family. If we went on to read the next chapter, here's what you'd hear. Abimelech, the son of the concubine, is afraid of the other sons of Gideon, sons of legitimate wives. So he gets a bunch of worthless men, I pretty close to the translation that's there. And in a single day, on a single stone, they slaughter 70 of Gideon's sons. Only Abimelech and his youngest survives. And in three years, Abimelech himself is killed. And Gideon's legacy, which should have been a great one, is over. 
And how does it happen? Because he's outwardly devoted, but somehow inwardly divided. And it happens with us too. It can if we're not careful. It can happen with us too that we start looking and we start thinking that we did something in our own strength when it was actually God who did it. And we might be tempted, one, to take the glory for ourselves. Or maybe you're in the position of the people. Maybe you're tempted to elevate someone to a position they don't belong. I don't care how good a preacher someone is or how big a ministry they have or how big a church they have or how much money their ministry has. It is not them that are supposed to be elevated. It is God that is supposed to be getting the glory for the work that he has done in a particular place, in a particular people. But we, in our Christian culture, especially in the 21st century, internet, TV, Instagram, Twitter, we, we elevate these platforms and make celebrities out of people that God never meant for them to get the glory, and some of it's on us. And we have to be careful that not only do we not fall into the temptation of Gideon, of desiring the glory, but we don't fall into the temptation of the people that say, now be king over us. You tell us what God says. You rule over us. That would be just an equal mistake. There's a warning in here for us. Reminds me of something Jesus said in his day to the religious leaders. He said this way, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Jesus said, you are outwardly devoted to God, but you are inwardly a mess. You look good on the outside, but the inside of you is a mess. When I was in college working at the church, I was the um, facilities guy here. Um, I took care of all the cleaning of the building and pretty much anything that needed to get done. I would do anything just to get around the church and be around ministry and learn. And one day, Pastor Crosby uh, came to me. He was going out of town for a while, and he said, he said, Rick, there's something in my office that stinks. He said, I think something died in my office. And at one point, we had a trouble with mice and stuff. And I thought, there must have been a mouse that died somewhere. And uh, he said, there's something that died somewhere. Can you try and find it? And I said, you know, sure. I, I got a pretty good sniffer. I can find it out, right? So I literally get down on my hands and knees like a bloodhound. And I am sniffing all over his office. And I am sniffing every drawer and every corner and every vent And I just cannot find, but it does smell awful. Like you walk into the room and you're like, this is unbearable. Something definitely died in here. And I look everywhere I can think of until I finally see on one of the tables in the office a travel mug sitting there. And I thought, well, it can't be, but I have smelled everywhere else. I go up to that mug and I take one whiff and I'm like, that's it. And I could not believe this. I, I, there's no way I would have believed that's what it was. In fact, I, Pastor Crosby, I told him what it was. He said, no way. I said, I am telling you. I took that cup. I wrapped it up in a plastic, I think two or three plastic bags. I threw that thing in the dumpster. I never wanted to see it again. 
And after a little while, that smell was gone. But here's the thing. On the outside, the cup looked great. On the inside, I have no idea what was growing in there because I did not take that lid off. I did not want to see what was growing in there. But that's what Jesus is saying. You look great on the outside. Cup's clean. Anyone that sees you sitting in church on Sunday morning thinks that's a good-looking cup. But inwardly, you're divided. You're missing it. What's that look like? It looks like coming to church on a Sunday morning and filling out a Connect card and putting your praise report on there saying, thanking God and praising God for this and dropping it in one of those Connect boxes that are conveniently located by the four doors on your way out, by the way. And you drop it in, you drop that card in, but you never take the time to go and thank God yourself. You want other people to see that you are praising God, but you never at one moment drop to your knees and say, thank you, God, for what you've done in my life. That's what it looks like. It looks like being all loud and boisterous on social media and other places about how important the family is and all the stuff and, and, and all these things in society and then going home and watching porn. That's what it looks like. It looks like being kind to someone to their face and in your heart really resenting them, their success, what God has done in their life. It looks like being in church on a Sunday morning and singing songs of praise to God and going at home and acting selfishly in front of the rest of your family. It looks like being generous and charitable to somebody on the outside but on the inside thinking I worked my tail off for that money and you better be grateful for it. Outwardly devoted, inwardly divided. And I'm just telling you, if you live that way, it won't be long before you deceive yourself and you start deceiving the people around you. You got kids in your house and they see you live that way, they are going to grow up deceived thinking that's the way Christians live. That you can be, as long as you're good looking in church, as long as everyone sees on the outside it looks good, you can act however you want to act at home and in other places. And you will end up deceiving you and the people around you and it'll be disastrous. Or you start thinking that I have done this in my own strength when you don't recognize that God's the one that built the table. God did it. So how do you do it? What's the response? <laughs> Jesus said, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. So to avoid being deceived and deceiving, just do the dishes. Pay attention to what's going on inside and ask God, God, cleanse me. God, cleanse the inside of the cup. God, cleanse my life. God, I need you to cleanse me and heal me. And participate in doing the dishes with God. Here's the, here's the problem that Gideon had. He started out in the spirit, but he ended up in his own strength. See, I didn't tell you one really key verse in Judges, and it's in Judges chapter six, and this is what it says. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. The spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. 
This wasn't done in Gideon's strength. This was done in God's strength by God's spirit. It's really interesting that the language is clothed Gideon because the thing that ends up ensnaring him at the end of his life is a piece of clothing that he made with his own strength and with his own hands. And it ends up ensnaring him and his family because he started out relying on the spirit of God, but he finished relying on his own strength. And I'm gonna ask our worship team to come up and join me as we prepare to respond and close because this happens in our life too. You may start out your life in God and you recognize, God, I raise a hallelujah. It's only you. You did it. I didn't save myself. Thank you, God, for doing it. But then you start going along and you start thinking, wow, I got to fix this in my own strength. I got to pull up my bootstraps. I got to stop doing this. I got to, I got to, it's all on me. And I got to do it. And then you get to the place saying, I did it. I look good. I did it. People around you think that you did it because you stopped giving the glory to God. See, it isn't just that God starts your walk with him with salvation. God sustains your walk and God completes your walk. It is not your strength, but his strength that does it. See, that's the whole key to this walk with God, that it's constantly saying, God, I need you to do it. God, I need you in my life. And you come to these places of discipline or you come to these places of dryness. And why do you come there? Because God wants you to say, God, I need you. God, you deliver me. God, it's all your strength. Paul said it this way in Galatians. Jesse read this scripture earlier in the service. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Stop trying to do it in your own strength. And remember that it's only God that does it. Because God's the one that will get the victory. God's the one that will bring the victory. God's the one that will fight the battle for you. That's the whole point of the story. But here's the deal. You're going to be tempted just like that table, just like my basement, to forget everything God did and think you got there on your own. You didn't. It was God's spirit and God's grace that changed and touched and cleaned up and made your life what it is and gave you forgiveness. And so you come today. Where is it? What needs to be clean? Where is it in your life that you're divided? Where is it in your life that you need to, God, to bring you a victory? To give it completely over to him. Where are you tempted? Christian man, Christian woman. Where do you have this temptation that you face to think this is success is something you brought about? Is something that happened because of how great you are? instead of something that God graciously gave you because of how great he is. Because that's the thing. People who are successful in one area, in whatever it is, people who have received from God face a unique temptation. And the unique temptation is to think that you did it. Instead of saying, God, all the glory goes to you. Finish the sentence. Finish the sentence that Gideon left unfinished. 
I will not reign over you. And oh, by the way, I did not bring the victory. God did. Lord, would you cleanse us and speak to us? Would you work in our lives? God, we need to walk in step with the Spirit. But so often we are tempted to try and work in our own strength. And so, Lord, teach us today to walk in your Spirit. Teach us today to walk with you and guide us. In Jesus' name.